You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Dr. David B. Nash has repeatedly been named to Modern Healthcare's Top 100 Most Powerful Persons in Healthcare list. Let's find out what he has to say about the challenges facing physicians today and the characteristics of an ideal practice. Welcome to the Business of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today, Dr. David B. Nash, author of Practicing Medicine in the 21st Century. Dr. Nash is the Dr. Raymond C. and Doris N. Grandin Professor of Health Policy and Chairman of the Department of Health Policy at Jefferson Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University. He is a national leader in healthcare quality and improvement and has been internationally recognized in this field. Dr. Nash, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. And you could call me number 72. That's what modern healthcare says. So, well, it's better than you don't want to be number one. There you go. You always get knocked down. So 72 is a good, a good number to be. Let's talk a little bit about the book you wrote, Practicing Medicine in the 21st Century, and maybe an example from the book in how systems break down. Ah, well, we learned in part from the key contributors around the country that, believe it or not, the office is a very dangerous place. That's right, even more dangerous than being a patient in the hospital from a statistical point of view. So one of the key chapters in the book talks about how to improve systems in the ambulatory setting, how to make sure you get the prescription to the right patient at the right time, how to maintain a legible and appropriate medical record. These are all really important steps that doctors can take to practice safer medicine in the future. You talk about the patient-centered practice in Chapter 4. I was wondering if you could teach our listeners a little bit about what that means. This work is started at Harvard Medical School in their key program called Nothing About Me Without Me. And everything flows from that, Larry. We believe that patients should be, in many instances, in control of their own care and that patients should help manage the information about their care, participate in their care coordination. Now, of course, the doctor is still going to be the key driver, but patients can be a key participant in their own care for everybody's benefit. That's what patient-centered care is all about. Now, when I see patients, I tell them, listen, I work for you. I am an advocate for you, but, you know, you really have to do what I say. Or you have the choice. You have the choice to do what I say. I'm just a consultant. That's right. It's clearly a two-way street, and we have to somehow move away from the old paternalistic model that we know best. Listen, patients can jump online and learn more about a specific disease than we'll ever know, and they can do it instantly. So the idea that we have some secret sauce that only we know how to create we got to get rid of that idea. And they do jump online, and they do come in every day, but they usually pick the, the worst diagnosis. Right. So our job is, in part, I think, for the future, to understand what's out there online and say to patients, look, I know you're going to be online looking at this. Here are two websites I recommend. Here are two websites I regularly review, or better yet, that I've contributed to. And I think you'll find them helpful, interesting, and will assist in our care of you together. What other types of activities do you think the doctor should do to get more engaged in what's going on today? Well, if you look at surveys of what patients want, the Medical Economics Magazine two years ago, the number one thing patients want from primary care doctors is, of course, email communication. The number one thing primary care doctors dread doing with patients, email communication. So we've got a disconnect there. 
I think if we could harness electronic communication in a safe, appropriate, totally legal, HIPAA-proof way, we'd be going a long way to improve the quality of the care we deliver, and I think it would make docs a lot happier in their day-to-day life. Well, it definitely documents the exact conversation, for one, but I think docs don't want to do it because uh, they think they're not going to get paid. And as it is right now, patients don't want to come into the office for anything. They know their diagnosis, and they just want us to give them something over the phone and make diagnoses over the phone. So this is, I see it similar that they're they're emailing us saying, listen, I have a sinus infection. I need my ZPEC. Whereas I've had people come in the office and they have Bell's palsy, which they thought was a sinus infection. So I would never say, okay, we're going to convert totally to telephone-based practice. I'm an advocate of looking for new tools, new techniques to improve the two-way communication, recognizing that patients can play an important role in their own care to everyone's benefit. You know, you travel around the country and you see people in training and students and residencies and What do you think is lacking in the current training that would be useful for preparing them for the realities of practice? We need an all-day program, Larry. (laughs) The punchline is most medical schools and residency programs, there's so much information that we have to get across in so little time. Where would we begin? But, you know, when we were in med school, if you recall, someone once said, you know, half of what we teach you is wrong, and we just don't know which half. So we could get rid of some of the material in med school because half of it's wrong. So We could be more efficient in how we deliver the material, that's for sure, and we've got to embrace some 21st century technology. We could recognize medical students can learn an awful lot on their own. They can click through programs. They can do interactive things online. There's all kinds of ways to get rid of an eight-hour lecture day sitting in an auditorium from dawn till dusk, that's for sure. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. I'm talking today with Dr. David Nash, author of the book Practicing Medicine in the 21st Century. Dr. Nash, malpractice issues are always a concern to me and to my colleagues, and I was wondering if you could Help us out by giving us three things that I could do immediately that would decrease my liability. Wow, three things immediately. Well, for sure, improve your record keeping, improve your listening skills, and close the feedback loop with patients. So here's what I mean. We unfortunately see every day in our big faculty group practice horrific record keeping where doctors think they've told the patient something and never write it down. We also see very bad communication skills when we recognize most professional liability cases stem from poor doctor-patient communication. And we also see cases where there's failure to follow up, and that's a systems-based problem. Where's your nurse? Where's your office manager? Where's your assistant? Who's the list of people you got to call tonight with abnormal lab tests? Write it all down. Create a system. I think in a nutshell, Larry, the way to limit liability, one word, process, process, process. In your travels, have you seen that improved by the EMR? You bet. You bet. In big groups and small groups, in every specialty you can imagine where there's electronic communication, there's a safer practice, there's prescriptions that are legible, there's problem lists that are current, there's an on-call experience that's not torture for the doctor or the patient. The EMR has gone a long way, even with some of the current issues. 
has gone a long way to improve the quality and safety of care. Have we seen any studies that actually prove that EMRs improve patient care, or is it all just kind of hypothetical? There's a large, burgeoning, scholarly, peer-reviewed literature out there that supports that EMRs are the way to go for improving quality and safety. The realities also are it adds time to every doctor's day. It's burdensome to start up. There's a steep learning curve. There are some downsides, no question about it. In your book, Chapter 2, you talk about getting rid of abbreviations, and uh, I agree with that. And do you think EMRs have solved that problem? They haven't solved it, but they certainly have gone a long way to ameliorating it. In every hospital I've been to in the last 20 years, there's always a case related to a ridiculous abbreviation that someone misinterpreted, gave a drug without checking, and there was an untoward outcome. So while we limit abbreviations, I think we're improving the quality and safety of what we do every day. And the EMR, if you have an appropriate template or background or screen, can really help to decrease our over-reliance on abbreviations. So you and I both know that the only thing in life that's constant is change. Yes. And P4P is is coming. It's here in certain states. Have you had any experience with it, and and what have you seen? Yes, well, for sure, pay for performance, or even if you would pay for documentation, as it's sometimes currently called, is a powerful force in the marketplace. The people who pay the bills for what we do are very enamored of pay for performance because they recognize that not everyone is created equal. So docs can go a long way to improving their own practice through paying attention to these national pay-for-performance programs, following the guidelines, joining the various national breakthrough programs for particular diseases like diabetes. I think the most important thing is staying abreast of these changes on an individual practice level. When we talked about decreasing liability exposure and not getting sued, You mentioned listening as number two. Yes. Is that a teachable skill? You bet, because unfortunately, again, Larry, you and I didn't have detailed videotaping of every training doctor-patient interaction, and we didn't have a simulation lab where we could work and practice our skills, our technical skills. So communication is definitely teachable. If you go to any major American business school, they teach communication because they know how fundamental it is toward success in the marketplace. So how come we don't do at least as good a job as Wharton or Stanford or Harvard Business School when it comes to communication? Well, continuing with that line of thought, when you introduce a computer into the exam room, you're kind of putting this third party in between the patient and the doctor And it makes it difficult to listen and communicate if you have to type away and get all the data into the computer. I think it makes it difficult early on. After you're at the higher part of the learning curve, it just becomes a part of the woodwork. You don't even notice it after a while. I know I take my children to a pediatric practice that's fully electronic. And after the second visit, I didn't even realize the doctor was typing while she was talking with us. It just becomes part of the fabric of everyday work. So the patients don't seem to to mind. Well, I certainly didn't mind, and my kids thought it was cool. So the doctor just has to get used to it. You bet. He can fight it as long as he wants, but it ain't going to go away. And you and I know that after a certain age level, when we won't specify exactly, but for docs of a certain generation, it's never going to work for them, and that's okay. Let's concentrate on the younger docs coming up who are going to embrace this technology 
and run with it and who grew up with it and have a great comfort level. Well, we've talked about EMRs. We've talked about email communication. Are there any other new technologies that you think will improve the quality of care? I think the most important technology is giving doctors an insight about their own performance. Again, something you and I never had. If you had a report card, a private, non-punitive report card about your own performance that was shared with you by a local peer or online in a confidential way and showed you how you're doing relative to a peer group, boy, you'd want to improve. I know I would. So most of us never had any information about how we're actually doing. That's a great technology for the future. Practice profiling, closure of the feedback loop, Those will be some of the key tools that will help to improve practice. Dr. David Nash, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.